This is Dr. Holly Lucille's Mindful Medicine. Here's Dr. Holly Lucille. Well, hello there, folks. Thank you so much once again for spending some of your day with us. I can't wait to open your minds today by talking about the connection between mental health and cancer treatment. Believe it or not, yes, I've got a doctor, Dr. Tom Incladon, otherwise known as Dr. Tom. He's a world-renowned expert in human health and performance, is the founder and chief scientific officer of Causenta Wellness, where he's bringing a very unique approach to healthcare and cancer treatment, which can be brutal, folks, as most of you, some of you know, and, and most of you know, if it's not you, a family member, a loved one, it could be a friend or somebody in your community. Um, and this has never been done before. So, Dr. Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, so first of all, I want to get started. We have so many practitioners, doctors on the show. What kind of doctor? I didn't see it listed here, and I just want to ask. So I'm an exercise scientist. Um, I have uh, five degrees in different health-related fields, but my terminal degree was a PhD, uh, pretty much exercise physiology with an emphasis in nutritional biochemistry. So most of my career was spent on doing different exercise and nutritional strategies with humans and then studying what happens to them by measuring things in their blood. But what's kind of unique is I've also studied cells and animals so I've kind of seen things from a molecular level to a cellular level to a whole, you know, intact human organism. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for explaining that. Um, and, you know, uh, of course, we're going to be talking about this connection between mental health and cancer treatments. So from from that background, where did this all begin for you? How did you get into this field? You know, I, I got into the field by getting sick a lot when I was younger. And then uh, I was very frustrated by the experiences I had with the healthcare system in the United States. And as I was kind of going through my own sort of health journey, if you will, um, when I was younger, you hardly ever heard about cancer, but every once in a while, someone I cared about would pass away. And then I noticed as I was getting older, uh, it's everybody knows someone that either has cancer or has died from cancer. It's, it went from a word you hardly ever heard and you would ask people, what does that mean? To now it is a household term that everybody, you know, and it's got a lot of fear with it. So along the way, what I noticed is that um, when I was training for uh, different sports, the way that athletes were treated and the way that different resources were allocated to enhance their performance was so far ahead of what patients were getting when they were dealing with a disease like cancer. And so I took the model that we used for um, helping athletes set all kinds of records and win Super Bowl rings and things like that, and I just repositioned it or repackaged it, if you will, so we do the same type of thing with uh, people suffering with terminal conditions. How fascinating. This is amazing. Um, from from the, that, that sort of that personal kind of impotence to get into this. Um, so talk about your alternative treatment methods and how those came to you after your unexpected illnesses. Sure. So, you know, so technically most of what we do is considered alternative, uh, but I will tell you personally, I don't think exercise and nutrition should be considered alternative. I think yeah. that should be mainstream and most of standard of care should be alternative, right? I love um, that you well, say that because... Oh, 
I love that you you say that, and 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 honestly, my dog completely agrees. Um, but I I have said before, you know, I kind of challenge this question of alternative by saying um alternative to what? Uh, so I I do appreciate yeah. that, and you know, it's also funny, Dr. Tom, when I asked you, sort of what kind of doctor are you? I get that question all the time, and I you know. <laughs> One of my quick responses to folks is, I just simply say, a good one. <laughs> and I sometimes just leave it at that. <laughs> That's that. I might steal that line from you. <laughs> yeah, please do. Okay, so, uh, you know, um, as as you said, uh, you know, these methods of lifestyle and um, nutrition, uh, nourishment and, and exercise, not alternative, but, but please, yes, carry on. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, from uh, from the time we're born, one of the first things that's critical for us to develop is we have to move. And unfortunately, as we've sort of, what do you want to say, modernized or advanced our technological resources or become more computerized, whatever term you want to use, we just move less. And every year, we're moving less than we did the year before. And it, you just can't, you know, exercise a half hour to an hour a day and compensate for the widespread lack of use throughout a 24-hour day. And so what happens is many people confuse lack of movement and lack of use of the human body with the actual disease process. And what I know from being, I was an elite athlete in five sports, I injured my knee, and in three days, my right leg looked different than my left leg. So I had no disease process. There was just an injury. But in three days, you could see the tremendous change in the tissue of the body. And when I started studying patients, and they would tell me, oh, the cancer is doing this to me, or this other condition is doing whatever symptoms to them, I'd like, I realized they're not moving. And so how do they know what's happening due to lack of use versus what's happening from the disease? And so uh, we started telling people, well, that was the old you. And once you walk through the store, the new you has a world of opportunity in front of you. And we started working on, you know, their, basically their mind to see that you're no longer trapped as a prisoner of your own making because you're on the other side of the doorway. Now you've got a whole world that you've never seen. I'm going to show you some really cool stuff. So we have people in wheelchairs that come in. They're not in wheelchairs because they have spinal cord injury or some sort of brain trauma. They're in wheelchairs because they are simply too frail. They're too weak to move. And on average, we have them moving within an hour, sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes you know 30 minutes, but within an hour, they're walking. And the way we're able to do that is, one, we understand how the brain maps to the body and how to facilitate that mapping process. Two, we use all kinds of energy systems. So I'm, on, uh, I'm hired by companies to investigate the physiological effects of their equipment. They send us very expensive machines, you know, sometimes they're 30 grand, sometimes they're 300 grand. And then we actually put people in these machines and then study. We draw blood measurements, we look at what happens, we have corneometers, we check joint angles, we have uh, full time physical therapists, full time chiropractors, and all kinds of other, let's say, health professionals on site. So we have different perspectives as to, you know, someone standing and going, hey, did you measure this? Hey, did you look at that? So it's not like just all the stuff that's crammed into my head. It's, you know, there's input from other people as well. And then we're asking the patient, how do you feel? And what the mistake a lot of people with cancer make is everybody knows you cannot feel cancer growing. So how you feel is simply not precise enough to tell you what the threat to your health is. Yet despite that sort of like um, 
unspoken awareness, if you will, when people actually have cancer and they're going through treatment, how do they evaluate the success of the treatment? They fall backwards and they go by how they feel, which has nothing to do with how much cancer is in the body. There's no linear relationship between like a mood state and a number of cancer cells or something along those lines. So we teach people how to uh, basically find a light at the end of this tunnel that could sometimes appear pretty dark and uh, and have a purpose that's not defined by other people around them or materialistic things outside because of data on on things like, um, you know, uh, so how come so many people with money commit suicide? They have all the money in the world and yet they're still not happy. Well, how come all these kids that go to Harvard Medical School and they're arguably in one of the best medical programs in the world and they're never fulfilled? And the common denominator in various circles of life, if you will, is people choosing to focus on things that they cannot control. And so when they lose control of that thing, they have an incredible level of dissatisfaction or unfulfillment. And so we work with people it's how, how to define a purpose that isn't based on, you know, something as uh, that's outside, beyond your control, and how to appreciate where the gains you're making and see where that's leading. And uh, if it's done, you know, if people listen, uh, we have, uh, I mean, we've had, um, so recently we had a young lady that came to the facility that could not stand. We didn't know this at the time. Family did not tell us this. She lost the ability to breathe and lost the ability to swallow because the tumor in her neck got so large it occluded the airway. So it's like two o'clock in the morning, the family's texting me and I'm like, it's too late to come here. Now we have to redirect you to the ER because you waited too long. They waited a year. You know, they went to other centers before coming to us. Their reason for not coming to us right away was, well, we never heard of you. We heard of all these places that are much better marketed it's okay, well, how many world record-holding scientists with five degrees, world records in five different sports, that made over 20 million before they turned 21, how many people do you know like that? Because there aren't many of us, I could tell you that right now. What you win is what most people do, is you Googled a few things, and based on some ads that appear, you didn't understand the back-end, the marketing metrics, the algorithms, and you use what's called a visual bias effect. So because you read it, you assumed it to be true, but you don't have a technical background to evaluate whether or not this stuff is accurate. So if a family spent over a million dollars in care and then came to our center, we were able to do something that was uh, never done before. We got an ER to agree to do um, a type of cancer treatment process that normally ERs do not do because they're not set up that way. Like if you can't breathe, you go into an ER. If your heart stops, you go into an ER. You're not going to like a long-term treatment center because you're not stable. You need like emergency medical attention. So my oncologist at our company or our facility was able to get in touch with the oncologist at the hospital, get him into the ER, and basically we intubated. I had this girl intubated, and while she was intubated, we were able to do a little bit of radiation and chemo to shrink the tumor about 30% so she could start swallowing and breathing, Mm. get her discharged in a week. And then when she came into our facility, uh, I saw her in a wheelchair. And at that point, we still didn't know that she couldn't walk. I'd talked to the family numerous times at that point. Still, that never came up from them. 
And uh, when I said, wow, how long she's been this way? They said for over four months. I said, all right, we'll have her walking in an hour. And they looked at me like I was a quack, of course, like most people probably would in that situation. And then an hour later, the daughter's walking and doing stuff. She hasn't done it in four months. And they're like, oh, my God, we should have just come here Mm. a year ago. I'm like, you know, you, you can't force. People have to go through their own journey in life. And maybe a year ago, you may not have been ready to hear the right. stuff I'm going to share with you because the mistake a lot of people make is they go, how many studies have you done and what research have you done? Well, one, you're talking to a real scientist and not someone that just, you know, got his his degree from mail order or something like that, actually sure. you know, put needles into people and measure things. And what I could tell you after testing over 100,000 people, I never met two people that are the same. So if you yeah. ask me, how many people I've studied like you, there's only one correct answer, and that's none. There's nobody, each one of us is so unique. It's not that we're the only one alive today. We're the only one like ourselves in the history of planet Earth. So that means like one out of 50 or 60 billion. We just recently did a whole new, um, we do, uh, we measure every single gene in the human body. We do all these advanced tests by collaborations with Harvard and Stanford and other research groups. And yesterday, we finally got some really cool data, which now we can, um, we could literally prove every single human being that we have tested. There's something called truncated genes, and there's these international databases. So let's say if you came in right now, and I took a saliva sample, we measured what's called your germline genetics in a saliva sample. We send it out to this lab, the lab does these different staging periods, but eventually they're gonna measure every single gene ever discovered by mankind, or humankind, I guess, to be more politically correct. And so now it goes, they connect your data to these international databases, and they could tell you of every person that they've ever tested, you have a gene, or which it's really a mutation of a gene, but you call sure. it a gene that has never been seen before. Right. So we we could irrevocably prove that, or irrefutably prove that you are alone. There's only one of you, there's no one else with that same, you know, detail. And now when you factor in the human genome with the human microbiome, you know, you got so many different scenarios and possibilities. It's difficult, like someone says, what should I eat? Well, we have, we have millions of data points, and what we see is a lot of sure. variability and response patterns. So how do I tell someone? And so usually I have um, sort of like three different answers, if you will. Yeah, so, so we don't, I want to, I kind of, I, I hate to interrupt you because yeah. I want to, I, just as, as a, a, a point of, of um, our conversation and kind of getting to that whole connection between that mental health and cancer treatment where we introduced it at the top of the show and just um, for time purposes, I want to, I want to hear what you have to say. And I, I, I definitely want you to finish, but I do want to definitely get to that connection because I think so many people sure. are interested in that uh, as far as that connection, because cancer treatments, conventional cancer treatments, especially can be brutal, 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 brutal. Um, and that mental health part of it, I'm sure you have so much to say. Yeah. So first, like, um, when we dissect people, you know, like in a cadaver lab, you don't see uh, mind, body, spirit, you know, in an anatomy lab. Right. There's no real dividing line, you know, between everything. And with the discovery that the uh, number of organisms in human microbiome exceeds the number of actually human cells, 
there's the realization that most of our biomass is not really what we think it is or who we think we are type of thing. And so a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that they do something because they choose to do it. In other words, it's their free will to do it. And it sounds good. It sounds pretty cool. Except that there's all these factors that are very low level that impact our decision making that we're simply not aware of. And by being more educated about these things, it helps us to better understand why we have reactions that we do and why we make the decisions. So a common thing, an example would be, so let's say when um, you were younger, you ran around like most kids do, you ran everywhere. Now you're older and someone says, hey, do you like to do cardio? And you go, no, I don't like cardio. And how is it that you liked it when you were younger, but you don't like it now? And most people would say it's their choice. But what we now know is that there's inputs from the body, so let's say the lungs to the brain, and those inputs are telling us we're under threat, if you will. And so now, because it's uncomfortable at some sub-threshold level, we start to make these decisions, well, I'm going to avoid walking, I'm going to avoid anything that involves the use of my lungs because it's uncomfortable to me. But that's not going to show up on a blood test. That's not going to necessarily show up in a way that could be measured unless you knew, you know, you had an algorithm that makes sure you look at those things. And when it comes into play is um, we've uncovered that with a number of people with very serious illnesses that um, there's almost like, I'll say, uh, baggage that they tuck away in their brain. And so an example of how this manifests itself is something like, um, you know, I ask you, how was your childhood? And you go, my childhood was fine. And then I'd say, okay, and we're talking a little bit. And I go, where did you go when you were scared? And you say, well, I ran to my my neighbor's house. And you say, why did you run to your neighbor's house? And you'd say, well, when my mother and father argued, it would bother me and I would get scared and I'd go somewhere else. And the point of this is going through a series of questions, which you find is that when we're younger, in order to cope with the stresses of the time or that moment or that situation, we tell self everything's okay, everything's gonna be okay. And it's not like there's something wrong with that, it's just sort of a way of coping with the challenge at the time. But now we basically have this experience that's kind of packaged and, and put into a box, like in our mental Rolodex, if you will, a file system. And now this box is kind of tucked away and we've been telling ourselves everything's okay. And so it's kind of like there, but never truly addressed or dealt with. And now, you know, decades later, we're trying to be positive thinking. We're trying to do, you know, something, you know, accomplish something in our lives. But we have this thing deep in our brain that's been, you know, kind of growing and festering. And it has impact. And uh, I've seen firsthand, and keep in mind, I come from an exercise background, not a psychology background or a psychiatry sure. background. But I have seen the impact, you know, athletes that say, I'm going to win, tend to win more than athletes that say, I'm going to try. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of like you're not as committed when you're just trying, you know. And on the other hand, though, we don't want to pressure, let's say, our children, or we don't want to pressure patients or family members, like, do it or else, right, because that's not a, doesn't resonate for a lot of people. But we want to kind of install in people, like, this drive to see this through, but without pressuring them in a way that may force them to be uncomfortable when they put the brakes on things. Sure. And so part of uh, the way we kind of connect things is we use movement. 
we do physical assessments, and as we're going through these physical assessments, we're showing people how their brain controls their body, and then what the other things that their brain is involved in, like certain cognitive functions, things like mathematics or memory, uh, movement patterns, and so um, a thing, the practical thing would happen is, you ask someone, did you ever twist your ankle? And they go, no, my ankles are fine, never hurt them. And as you put them in different movements, they'll say, wait a minute, I hurt my ankle when I was nine or when I was five, but you know, it was just 30, 40, 50 years ago. They just don't remember it when they're not in a position that may help them to recall. And then from there, we can tie into, you know, their thinking and their strategy and their decision-making and what's, what, how, what do they think may have been holding them back before. Because That's a lot right. of people have, um, we, we have biases. An example, I have, um, I have a number of colleagues that are physicians that actually come to us for their own personal care, and they're very good at what they do. So they produce really good results, but now when it comes time for their own bodies, they walk in and they go, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And since they're you know pretty friendly with them, I, I respond with, wow, how does it feel to have so many limitations in life? Because I want them to realize they they made the choice to limit themselves. No one told them they couldn't do any of this stuff. They made a conscious decision, but it just never occurred to them that this was simply a choice. And they they got themselves into it, and they can get themselves out of it. So I hope that wasn't too uh, long-winded. Yeah, well, no. I mean, so I I want to, for our viewers, for our, our listeners... I want to give your website because it sounds at Cosenta um, Wellness, which is where you are, you know, the founder and chief scientific officer. You've got an MD on staff. I see that you, PhD, excellent. And also you have a naturopathic doctor as well. Pretty much personalized wellness from top to bottom. And in all of these subtle and, like you said, non-alternative, but incredible things you do through movement and connection. Um, you've got some great patient testimonials on there and solid, solid, solid work. And folks, for your edification, it's www.causecenta.com. That's C-A-U-S-E-N-T-A.com. Once again, we are talking to Dr. Tom Incladon, otherwise known as Dr. Tom. Dr. Tom, I got uh, time for one more question. What are some of the most missed questions cancer patients should be asking? Well, so... um... I need to just reframe that slightly because two questions that people never ask or maybe ask in the wrong way. Uh, one is any doctor they're seeing that's going to be involved in their care, you want to ask, how will you treat the cancer in my body? And when you're there for that meeting or console, whether it's by phone or in person, everyone on your team, everyone that's going to be supporting you through this journey, they have to be present. You can't have part-time supporters that, you know, so if they're going to be part-time, then they're out of the decision-making process because they're going to interfere with the outcomes later on in a negative way. You need people that hear the same message at the same time so that if you need their input, they're hearing what you heard and they can help you reconcile things better. And the reason why you want to ask the question, how you help treat the cancer in my body, you want to see if they have an answer before they know your name. If they already have a treatment plan before they know anything about you, that is not personalized. <laughs> That's one-size-fits-all medicine, and we already know yeah. that doesn't work. So you can save yourself time and money, just move on. Second question that you need to ask is, 
when it doesn't work, what will you do? Because everybody reads stuff on the internet and they chase treatments. And it's absolutely absurd to think you could read something on the internet and find out a treatment for yourself that will work when there's thousands of options and we know the vast majority of people with cancer do die. Um, there's a huge discrepancy between uh, experiences that most providers have and the data that's being reported. And there's a huge lapse. So um, I could tell you that uh, the majority of people that we monitored, we monitored 200 people that went to Mexico because we wanted to see the different outcomes. All 200 people passed away. We then looked at the websites for these centers. They all claim to have near 100% treatment success. So big discrepancy between what we're observing and what we see being reported. Uh, there isn't a single treatment that is 100% effective for all cancers. And the reason is the cancers in everybody's body, and the, the differences in our cancer cells alone requires different treatments because no two cancer cells are the same. So you can't have the same cancer in two different bodies because the genetics and microbiome are very different. Ah, there you go. Well, it de- definitely sounds like the ultimate of personalized medicine with a tremendous amount of education, science, and care. So, uh, Dr. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. Once again, folks, if you want to learn more about the approach and also get a free consultation, www.casenta.com. That's C-A-U-S-E-N-T-A.com. All right, folks, thanks for listening so much. We'll see you again.